Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack. And Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. It's a special episode where we are going to be sharing with you a, 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 a topic that is also airing on tomorrow night's Japanimation Station season finale, where Sean and I go into depth with one of our top ten games, if it's a game, of last year, which was Witch on the Holy Night, Mahotsukai no Yoru, which is a visual novel that got a remake uh, and its first English-language release late last year. And we talked about it at the beginning of the show this year when we did our top 10 games, uh, but we also recorded around that same time a big in-depth discussion that was going to air on Japanimation Station. You can hear that tomorrow night as part of the Japanimation Station season finale. We're finishing season two, Ufa Table Moonworks, but we're also going to play it here on the Weekly Stuff today so that you guys have some content and can hear what we've been up to over on Japanimation Station. Yeah, because as you said, this is a thing that we recorded uh, when we did that top 10 uh, games uh, podcast for the year uh, and it's you know whether or not it is a video game that's that is open for debate but it is really fucking good um, and it's a really good conversation and something uh, to know as well is that if you haven't played the game but you're like interested in hearing the conversation we do go through basically a plot synopsis of the game at the top of the conversation since obviously it's something that's fairly niche and is also very long um, but I think it's really interesting to kind of dive into it. And I think even if you haven't played the game, the conversation is still accessible if you want to check it out. Yep. And uh, definitely if you are into the Japanimation Station side of things, which you should be, because season two, we're finishing up. It's fantastic. The season two finale is also going to include Sean and I talking about the delightful slice of life cooking fantasy show, today's menu for the Emiya family to finish all of the UFO table type moon works. And then at the end of the season two finale, we will be revealing season three of Japanimation Station, which we are already well into production on. And I am so psyched. And uh, about Tuesday night, around 10 p.m. Central on YouTube is when we'll start talking about that during the premiere. And uh, it's good. I'm so excited for you guys to hear it. Yeah, so it's the great conversation for today's episode for Weekly Stuff. And then, as you say, Jonathan, also, you know, stick around for Japanimation Station uh, the season two finale, or you, you want to come so you can hear what season three is going to be, but you want to stay because I do talk about the only Switch game I think I've ever talked about on this podcast since the launch of that console. All right, Jonathan, so let's go ahead and get into Mahotsukai no Yoru, also known by its English language title, Witch on the Holy Night. I'm excited. This is this is a segment that willed itself into being not yes. a part of our original plan for Japanimation Station Season 2, but uh, we were playing this game. It, it just happened to come out as we were starting production on this season in English in December, uh, and we were playing it the whole time, and it is such an important text to the entire Nasuverse. We wound up mentioning it so many times during the episodes you've heard this season, we had to do at least, you know, today's episode is not going to be comprehensive because I think you would need a couple episodes to really dive into this whole thing. But we want to do at least some justice to it uh, as it pertains to all the other conversations about UFO Table and Type Moon that we've had. And also UFO Table will have a movie based on this in the near future. Yes. I, I, this is something I'm actually curious about is if it's because they haven't clarified if it's going to be one movie or more because I having played the game. 
I think this is a very clear two movie structure and I do not know how you do this in one movie, but I think you could, I think you could do it in one movie in so much as it depends on whether or not you see the mid plot turn of what happens at the amusement park as the end of act one or the end of movie one. I think that's yes. kind of, that's how you would have to, to think about it. But yes, uh, but yes, either way, whether it's going to be one movie or multiple movies, there will be a movie on it as well. And that will that will fully fit into the UFO table moon works. Um, yes. so we'll have like a special guidance episode or something of the pod of, of season two <laughs> to do when that comes out. Indeed. But Sean, uh, for people who maybe have not played Witch on the Holy Night, but would still like to hear us talk about it. Um, let's go through the plot. And I found it. This is a website called SukiCon.com. And I just want to, we're going to use their plot summary. We're going to read it out to you both to refresh us, because for us, it's been a couple weeks since we played this. And also just to set a baseline, here is what happens in the game. Um, and if you have not played the game yet, maybe you can just get a background here. I don't think this is a game that can super be spoiled in that sense. I think it is a thing that even if you knew the plot going in, which I know you did, Sean, um, mm -hmm. it is so rich. It's not really about plot twists. Um, so we're going to read that out. If you don't want to have it spoiled, go play the game and come back later. But let's read the plot summary out, and then we will go through it, Sean. Uh, I'll start here with what is in chapters one and two, and then you can take over after that. The story begins with a flashback to Aoko Aozaki's childhood. When she accidentally killed a family of cats hiding in her father's car's engine, she asked her grandfather to revive the cats, but her grandfather is unable to do so. Fast forward to the present in the late 1980s, Aozaki Aoko is living with Kuonji Alice in a large mansion on top of the hill of Misaki Town as she studies under Alice to become a mage. During the day, they both live normal lives as a high school students. Aoko, the student council president, is asked by her homeroom teacher, Yamashiro, to show the school to a new transfer student named Shizuki Sojuro. Despite her annoyance and unreasonable anger towards Sojuro, Aoko does her job. The next few days focus on the daily lives of Aoko, Alice, and Sojudo. Sojudo, having lived his whole life in the mountains, is struggling to get used to city and school life and works multiple part-time jobs just to get by. At school, Sojudo quickly become fr becomes friends with Tsukiji Tobimaru, the student council vice president, and Kinomi Hosuke, a classmate and co-worker at the same part-time job. The two help Sojudo with adjusting to city life and getting on good terms with Aoko, who is irritated by Sojudo for no reason. At night, Alko and Alice move around in the city to defeat enemies sent by an unknown mage who they suspect is trying to take over their territory. Although they have no trouble defeating the enemies sent by the mage, one night while on his way back from work, Sojudo accidentally witnesses Alko's battle and runs away before neither Alko, Alko nor Alice could identify him. Those who stumble upon a mage's world must be eliminated, so Alko and Alice spend the next few days looking for the trespasser. Once they discover Sojudo to be the one, Alko makes plan, uh, plans to eliminate Sojudo by inviting him to an abandoned amusement park in the next town. At the amusement park, Alko attempts to kill Sojudo as she chases him in a house of mirrors. However, they're interrupted by a puppet that looks like Alko. The puppet, sent by the unknown mage from earlier, attempts to kill Alko, but is destroyed along with the house of mirrors by Alko with the help of Sojudo. Just as Alko decides Sojudo is not such a bad person and agrees to spare him for the time being, Alice appears out of nowhere and announces her intention of not letting Sojudo leave the place alive. Alice unleashes an ancient ploy or familiar called Flat Snark that can bring objects from fantasy to life. Flat Snark turns the entire amusement park into a fairy tale-like land filled with monsters as Alko and Sojudo attempt to flee the park. 
At the end of the epic battle with the help of Sojudo, Aoko destroys Flat Snark with her signature magic missile. Before all is over, Sojudo saves Aoko from one final attack from the then-still-alive Aoko puppet before it is finally destroyed. Having lost to Aoko, Alice agrees to let Sojudo live, with the condition that eventually they erase his memory. Much to Alice's dismay, Aoko forces Sojudo to live in the mansion so she can keep an eye on him until the spell for erasing memory is found. In the days that follow, Sojudo struggles to fit in and get used to living with the two mages. As time goes by, Aoko and Alice slowly warm up to Sojudo. In an attempt to further strengthen their friendship, Sojudo gifts Aoko and Alice tickets to an aquarium while he stays home to watch the house. While the two mages are gone, Sojudo receives a visit from the unknown mage that has been attacking Aoko and Alice. The enemy mage turns out to be Toko, Aoko's older sister who is back for revenge and to take back what she feels should have been hers. Now aware of their enemy's true identity, Aoko and Alice split up to confront Toko. Alice encounters Toko first, and the two battle. Just when it seems Alice has the upper hand, Toko reveals her trump card, a phantasm golden werewolf named Lou Beowulf, who is immune to magic. Alice is severely wounded and left to die as Toko and Lou leaves to fight Aoko. Sojudo, after learning of Alice's predicament from Toko, decides to help and runs out to help the injured Alice, carrying her back to the mansion. Alice asks Sojudo to bring her to the church, where she requests help from Eri, Yuika, and Ritsuka. They find a badly wounded Aoko and bring her to the church as well. As Aoko and Alice recuperate and plan their next and final battle with Toko, Sojuro talks to Aoko and Eri to learn more about Aoko's past as well as himself. Aoko and Alice, despite their weakened state, go out at night to confront Toko before Toko can officially take over their territory. As the two are about to be defeated by Toko and Lu again, Sojuro shows up and, much to everyone's surprise, defeats Lu by temporarily rapturing his heart. Rupturing his heart. Although Lu immediately recovers, he becomes aware of the concept of death and is unable to continue the fight. Just as Aoko is expressing her amazement at Sojudo's feet, Toko kills Sojudo, prompting Alice to or Aoko to activate the time-based fifth magic, the skill that she inherited from her family and which Toko is trying to take. Aoko brings Sojudo back to life and easily defeats Toko. Just as Aoko is about to kill Toko, Sojudo stops her, resulting in her to instead place a curse on Toko so that she could never come back to Misaki Town. Days after the final battle on New Year's Eve, Aoko brings Sojuro to her home, where her grandfather could erase both his and Aoko's memory. It is revealed through their conversation that the mountain village where Sojuro came from may actually be a training ground for assassins cut off from the outside world, which explains why Sojuro was able to stand up to Lu. Upon meeting Sojuro, Aoko's grandfather changes his mind and decides something as troublesome as erasing memory should be done by Aoko herself. As a result, Sojuro continues to live with Aoko and Alice in the mansion. The two mages have long since accepted him to be a member of their home, and despite having already found the memory-erasing spell, decide to overlook the spell and let him live in the mansion with them. And they all lived happily ever after. The end. <laughs> um, Until you... the murder mystery happens, which literally does happen, but we don't need to get into that. <laughs> Well, we'll talk about it a little bit later because yeah. it is fun. Um, but yes, there is a bonus mystery, murder mystery scenario, which is basically what if Dongon Rompa in the Nasuverse? Um, yes. And it is very fun. But yeah, that is the main story of Mahotsukai no Yoru. Um, as you can already tell if you've been watching all of the Tight Moon stuff with us, this has obvious connections in terms of characters to Garden of Sinners, to Tsukihime. It has thematic and narrative connections to Fate's Day Night. Uh, and, and on our uh, Top 10 Games of the Year podcast, uh, where we talked about the best games of 2022, 
and we debated whether this was a game, but had it on our lists. Um, I said, this game kind of feels to me like the Rosetta Stone for Nasu's entire project. So, Sean, uh, maybe first you can just give us the brief history of this and where it comes from. Uh, and then we can talk about why it has that kind of outsized role in the Nasuverse. Yeah, so, you know, as a recap of stuff we talked on some of the early episodes of Season 2 of Japanimation Station, Mahotsukai no Yoru in its original conception was a novel that Hinokanasu wrote in 1996 after being inspired by the first episode of Neon Genesis Evangelion to try to get back into writing. Um, and so he wrote this draft of a novel that he submitted to some uh, novel competitions, uh, which were not accepted because it was too long and he couldn't figure out how to get it shorter un- in, under the uh, page length. Um, and so it kind of went on a shelf, you know, and there was stuff with uh, Takashi Takeuchi, the illustrator that like came up with some character designs and stuff. Um, but eventually it never really came to fruition. Um, and then eventually, obviously, they went on to make Garden of Sinners. Garden of Sinners includes Toko, right? Aoka's sister is in there. That's where she is officially like used in an officially released project. But her character originally came from Mahotsukai no Yoru. Then eventually they released Tsukihime in the prologue of Tsukihime. Aozaki Aoko, the main character of Mahotsukai no Yoru, appears. She's the character that gives Shiki, the main character in Tsukihime, the glasses that allow him to sort of control his uh, mystic eyes that he has. Um, So she appears there. Again, she originally came from this draft novel, but that was the first time she was ever in anything released. Um, And so Mahotsukai no Yoru is this kind of origin point where some of these characters that are recurring characters that pop up um, in other places, uh, some of like Sojudo's whole stuff um, was kind of reused uh, in a different way as for, for Kuzuki Sensei and Fates Day Night, which we can talk about as well. Um, but so the character stuff came up, but then also Mahotsukai no Yoru is where the conception of magic and like the mystic and that kind of stuff really starts for Nasu in his works, even if it wasn't originally released. Now, obviously, the visual novel we have is not just that original draft, right? So there are things about it that obviously they like is building off of the ways that some of those fantasy ideas were developed. But at the same time, like the core of the story and especially, I think, what is most critical is the notion of the distinction between magecraft and magic, or true magic, however you want to translate those terms, majutsu in Japanese, magecraft, or maho, true magic, um, is how it's usually translated, um, which is kind of the root of some of the notion of magic. All of that stuff comes from the original draft. It's part of the title, Mahotsukai no Yoru, which, which on the Holy Night is kind of like not really a translation of really it would be like Knight of the Magician would probably be the most straightforward translation of that title um but yeah so that all the kind of fantasy world building around magic it really comes from here um you see echoes of that through all the rest of his projects and so yeah I think calling it a sort of Rosetta Stone or a kind of this origin point um is very appropriate for what Maho's kind of go to is even in this kind of modified visual novel form that it ultimately exists in because, you know, you also get, um, and this is stuff that would have been there in the original draft, just the whole character dynamics. You know, the idea mm-hmm. of the kind of, like, Sojuro Suzuki is the first of the Nasu boys, right? Like, he is the first yes. one in that line of, you know, um, um, why am I forgetting the name? The main, the main, Mikia. Uh, Kokuto. Kokuto, sorry. I want to say Kosuke, and that's wrong. Yeah, Mikia Kokuto in Garden of Sinners. Obviously, Shiro in um, Fate's Day Night. I assume there's someone like that in Tsukihime. Uh, yeah, but basically, you're, yeah, your boy who is 
seemingly on the surface pretty normal and well-adjusted, but there is something else going on, and it is the encounter with the girl that kind of reveals that. Um, the girl who seemingly is more messed up at the beginning, but maybe is less messed up by the end. Um, and that is obviously Aoko Aozaki. Aoko is a fairly clear prototype, I would say, for Rin in Fate Stay Night, mm-hmm. like Tosaka Rin. They're ultimately pretty different characters, but like on the surface, and I think in that initial confrontation, there's quite a few similarities there. Um, Alice is is maybe one of the more unique characters in this con- con- uh, compared to some of the other stories we've talked about. But, you know, you have all of those dynamics you also have, and I think what makes this, why I use the term Rosetta Stone is also because like, this is by far the simplest of the stories we've talked about. Yes. Like this is way more straightforward. There are, there's some scenes where they play with chronology a tiny bit, like the day before, but there's none of the out of chronology storytelling like Garden of Sinners. There aren't multiple routes like in Fate Stay Night. And even within all of that, the stakes are just much, much lower than any of those. Like this is mm-hmm. about a battle for control of this one area of the world that most of the people in that area would have no idea that that control had even shifted. And the most kind of big thing that is happening is maybe Alko and Alice are going to die, you know, in this battle with Toko. It is very small stakes. It is very intimate. Most of the game is a three-hander with your three main characters and in the end, a fourth with Toko. The side characters who come up probably have more dialogue in the extra, like, murder mystery thing at the end yes. than they do through the actual body of the of the actual visual novel. Uh, it is also significantly shorter at just about 25 hours to play through the whole thing. Um, and I think all of that allows you to sort of see some of the basic ideas in a much more stripped down direct capacity. Uh, Not just in that like it explains things like magic and true magic in a much more straightforward way than the other Nasu pieces do, but also because it is so low stakes and it is relatively slow paced, I think you just see a lot of those thematic concerns come to the surface. Like this is set in the late 1980s and Japan's boom economy is stopping the boom <laughs> and we are entering a period of of you know basically japanese stagflation that would last for a very long time um and so there is this economic downturn going on and something i've also noticed um that's in all of nasu's other stuff as well like that is there in uh, the first episode of garden of sinners which i recently rewatched um is that whole apartment complex that is the suicides are built around there there's a whole spiel from toko that is really close to dialogue in this about the amusement park about a place that was built during the boom that no longer has a place in the world during the bust and that is something that is an idea he keeps coming back to um and so there's so many pieces like that that i think make it that we even though this is not an ufo table work yet we had to talk about it this season because so many thoughts, so many paths that I think you would talk about discussing Nasu's work come back to Mahotsukai no Yoru. Yeah, and I think one of the big things is that, like, this is kind of the only thing that Nasu wrote that is specifically about magic, right? Like, it's a part of everything else. It's a part of Garden of Sinners. It's a bigger part of Fate Stay Night. Um, but it's not what those stories are really about. Um, whereas this, it's like, Mahotsuka no Yoru is about magic. Like, there's a reason why that's in the title. Um, and it's, you know, and it is, you know, uh, like, Aoko is as much a POV character as Sojiro is, right? Like, in that sense, they are co-protagonists, right? With, like, Alice is obviously the other, like, most important character here. Um, but Sojiro and Aoko, one thing that separates this from other 
or like specifically from the visual novels from Tsukihime or Fate Stay Night, for those outside of very select specific scenes, they are told totally from the POV of the main of the boy, right? Partially because those are also specifically like romantic visual novels where you have different love interests that you pursued in the different routes. Um, but here, Sojudo and Aoko are treated equally as protagonists. So one of our main characters who is a POV character is a witch or a mage. Like, it is her world, and it is the world of magic that you're completely embroiled in. Um, and there's not a Holy Grail war and servants and all that kind of stuff. That's like, that shit in Fate Stay Night is exotic and insane, even within the realm of magic. Here, it's like very much about magic and what that is. Um, and that's one of those things that is kind of a, a little bit of a light bulb moment about it for me as a longtime Nasu fan is that some of the stuff that goes in to depth here with magic is stuff that you only know from like reading wikis or from like the extra lore things on the side in Fate Grand Order or this little bonus scene in Fate Stay Night or stuff like that. Whereas here it is like the focus of the story and it's what it's about magic, both literally and like figuratively in this world. Um, and that's one of the things that's incredibly fun about it as a fan of this stuff is just to dive into magic and what it means and its implications and the vision and idea of magic that Natsu has is so fascinating and so completely different from any other fantasy work I've ever seen. Yeah. And of course, the other notable thing about it, uh, while I am not someone who's played a ton of visual novels and I think you've played more, but would not say that's like probably your like expert genre, right? No. Um, yeah. I think both of us would say this is the best produced visual novel we've ever seen. And from circles of people who have, I think, would call themselves more experts in the genre, I have seen the same sentiment. Um, you know, talking specifically about the 2022 version we have now that is out in English as well and is on PS4 and Switch and has full voice acting and HD and everything. Um, this is just a absolutely spectacular production. It is not video gamey in any way because this is a purely linear novel um, with no choices or anything like that. But you have just a staggering amount of art. It is all so beautiful. You have a staggering number of character portraits and animations. And every scene in this in this visual novel is so bespoke and is so lovingly crafted. You can tell what a labor of love this was for everyone at Type Moon. Because in a sense, I mean, when they made this in 2012, it's almost like the, the victory lap. They've conquered the mm -hmm. world of visual novels, and now we're coming back and doing this piece that kind of helped spawn all of it. Um, and I think the music and everything, and, and in this version now, the voice acting, it is just such a loving and stunning production. And you put all of that together, and this is just one of the most incredible things I've ever seen in any medium. Yeah, like if people are curious what is different about this remastered version, um, it is like specifically it is just they remastered the art. So it's the same art fundamentally. It's just I, you know, they kind of rescanned it in and, uh, and it's a higher resolution. Um, like the I actually downloaded, it took a while to get this fucking run, um, but the Japanese original visual novel version on PC just so, because I was curious if there were any other differences. Um, and it's lower resolution, um, but the art still obviously looks fucking good. It's just like, it's very it's kind of cleaned up now um but then other than that the only thing they added was voice acting the original game had no voice acting at all which stands out in a weird way because everything else is so high quality that it's kind of weird that there's no voice acting in the original pc release um but they've got a really killer voice cast which we'll go through um for this one but everything else like there's no additional story or anything like that they didn't add any new cgs or illustrations to it um, no new music, nothing like that. It is a very straightforward remaster, um, but 
much appreciated because for us, in many ways, the biggest thing is that it's just available in English and you can just get it over here. And then also, if you're someone who can read Japanese or is interested in practicing Japanese, a cool bonus is all the Japanese text is in there in the English release as well. You can go into the options and change the language for the text. Um, so if you want to see in Japanese, you can also look at the Japanese text, which I liked because every once in a while I would switch over to the Japanese version and see how they translated stuff. But um, yeah, it is in terms of a visual novel production, as you said, Jonathan, I would not ever say like claim to be an expert, but I've played a decent number of visual novels and, and quite a few of the ones that people would consider like big classics. And this is the most impressive I've ever seen a visual novel be in a pure production sense. And I would say that's fundamentally true of the 2012 version as well. Like it's impressive, not just because it's like, you know, Type Moon is like a very successful company and so can afford to like put a lot of time into visual novels and stuff and put more money overall into this project than most visual novels, which are typically fairly indie. Um, it's like the skill is what it is. It is fundamentally, it is there is a level of like skill and care and craftsmanship that goes into this. Um, because visual novels are a thing that you can only make so good by throwing money at it. There are only so many people that can work on a visual novel, you know, like it's not an Assassin's Creed game where you can have a thousand people on the development team. Like it's a very modest development team of people that actually worked on this thing. Um, but it's just that level of craftsmanship. And for me, it's like the density of it. It is a visual novel that is, um, like a kind of a medium length one. It's like 25 hours to 30 hours in length. Um, which sounds long, but is much shorter than something like Fate Stay Night. Um, yeah, like so on the website, there's a website, vndb.org, the visual novel database, which is a good website if you're interested in visual novels. It's got lots of like information on visual novels and their releases and translations and stuff like that, um, and reviews and things like that from users. Like that has um, Fate Stay Night at 85 hours in length, right? So that like puts you into perspective of how long these visual novels can often become. Mahasuko Nayori at 25 to 30 is like very modest, uh, but it has so much production within that more modest length that gives it this hugely powerful handcrafted quality to it. That means it's more impressive to me in a visual sense and the way scenes are constructed than the Tsukihime remake, which I've played through the first route of by now, um, which also is amazing and looks gorgeous and is better looking than any other visual novel I've made played aside from Ahotsuka no Yoru. But it's too long to be able to have that handcrafted quality. It's too long for there to be someone who you feel like really sat down and thought about how am I going to use my character portraits in this scene? How am I going to like move them? How am I going to cut from scenes to scene? How am I going to use combinations of our more elaborate illustrations with our standard backgrounds and character portraits and move them and split the scene and have things scroll across? Like there's just so much creativity and energy and effort that went into making every single sequence of Mahotsukai no Yoru feel crafted and not just a standard visual novel scene of a background with some text on it or two characters in like a little box at the bottom of the text thing. And the most you get is like a fade as the character portrait shifts emotions. That's what you usually get for most visual novels for 90% of the experience. And for most visual novels, that's great and totally fine. Here, every scene is different. No scene feels like it's just replicating the same visual presentation as the last five hours you played of the game. And that's something that is really remarkable about Mahotsuka no Yoru. It really, I think, proves the power of this medium of like, why would you want the visual novel version instead of just put all the text in a book and let you read it at your own pace, right? And maybe put some illustrations in there. And I think you see with this, like there is such an impact to 
the the composition of visuals, the quality of the art, the preciseness of the framing, when they choose to throw an image at you, how they transition from one image to another. There are parts of this where just, you know, a piece of text followed by a certain image will be emotionally devastating or emotionally euphoric. There is an entire section like chapter five and six, which is the big sort of centerpiece at the amusement park. The thing UFO table is going to go to fucking town on in the movie. Uh, that is a true tour de force, like with the visuals that they give you, the experimentation in visual style, all of the shit they throw at you, the, the hugeness of the ideas that Nasu is putting into the text that then the visuals will be able to sort of hint you at, um, but not throw you all the way there because this isn't a full animation. Um, it really is such a masterpiece of the format. I think it, it makes you excited to want to go play other visual novels just because it has opened up a whole world of expression in the mastery of the format. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is, it's just like, as, as someone who like, really likes visual novels but kind of fell off of them because they're very long and they're hard to fit into your life, like this just was like a huge like injection of everything that makes visual novels good. And, and it's why like I immediately jumped into importing that Tsukihime remake because I'm like, I got to play more of these because <laughs> this game is so good. It's so much fun. It's so well put together. Um, yeah, it's fucking that side of it is incredible. But then also the, you know, everything that that presentation is delivering to you, which is fundamentally the writing, the prose, the story like that is also incredible. Yes. And, you know, just uh, hopefully we'll have some time in here just for me to read out some of my favorite passages because Nasu's prose is absolutely gorgeous. I think this translation is very striking. Uh, it has some weird typos and romanization things, but overall I found it to be a very uh, readable and, and beautiful translation. Um, and yeah, but Sean, let's talk about what makes this story so special. Okay, well, what, what is that for you? What is that for me? That's a good question. Um... You know, I think ultimately it is the characters. I think it is this trio of characters of Alice, uh, Aoko, and Sojuro. I think it is the bracing emotional places that we go to. And I don't want to act too seriously. There's parts of this novel that are very fun and funny. But I think there is a, a fundamental vulnerability that you see in the other works as well with Sojuro of, you know, how much abuse this character takes how good-natured he is about it, and then how much you start to feel for him and for the pieces that are missing from him. And I think you start to see something similar with Alko, who is a magician. Well, she's a mage, sorry. But she is relatively... No, she's a magician. She can yes, use fucking she is, magic, okay. motherfucker. She can, at the end of the game. But yes, for most of the game, she's just a mage. But yes, she is a magician. Um, but she, uh, you know, she is relatively new to this world in so much as she was not expecting to take on the family legacy. And, you know, she is also being presented with things that uh, are hard for her to follow through on, like killing the nice boy, because that's what the Mage Association says you've got to do when people come, right? Um, and I think watching how those characters circle each other and navigate this space and everything about it just feels so vivid. These characters feel so real. It feels like such a slice of of an actual full three-dimensional world that you've been asked to come inhabit. And I think watching how they bounce off each other and fill each other's missing pieces, because like all of Nasu's stories, this is fundamentally a love story. And I think Alice plays in there as well. Um, 
it's really tremendously beautiful. And of course, it brings up a bunch of fascinating and interesting themes and ideas that I, I want to hear you talk about, Sean, because on our top 10 podcast, you hinted at some, some really interesting interpretations of this game. But I do think just ultimately seeing these characters come into a certain maturity over the course of this and open up to each other and you know the process of letting someone into your life, it really is uh, absolutely beautiful. There's this line near the end of the game, and I'm, I'm trying to find it here. I have, uh, as I have done for a lot of our podcasts this year, my new way of taking notes is I just take pictures of everything and then put them in a Google folder because it's easier than trying to write down things, right? Um, but there's this line where they're talking about, um, it's near the end of the game where they're walking over to the grandfather's mansion. And, and the, basically the last chapter of this game is a long walk that Alko and Sojiro take through the snow. And there's this part where she's asking him, well, how did you and Alice get to be friends? Because by the end of this game, Alice and Sojiro are pretty tight, even though Alice yes. really tries hard to kill him in chapter five. Um, and he says, I don't think there's any particular time I can point to when it happened. But if I had to, I'd say it started the first time we spoke and we got a lot closer after talking that time in the foyer, too. And dot, dot, dot from Alco. That's it? Because that sounds so simple, right? Well, we just I had to say it started when we spoke and it continued after that. And then he says, yeah. Getting to know someone is all about little moments like that. Wouldn't you agree? And that's, that's Mahotsukai no Yoru to me. Be, you know, cut through all of the magic, all of the setting, all of the absolutely crazy shit that happens in this game. And it is a game about getting to know someone in the little moments and then staking your life on it. And I think it is tremendously beautiful and meaningful in that, in that space. Yeah, and I think for me, there's this like the whole other layer of the story, which is there's like these really big, very powerful evocative themes that play out through the characters and through particularly like the setting that I found really moving and powerful about um, like magic and nature and human civilization. Like to me, that is like fundamentally on a thematic level, what the game is about. And it's about like this intersection between human civilization, the city and the people that live there and like Alco and that. Um, and then the nature and the natural world, which is where Sojido comes from, right? Sojido is like this very symbolic character because he's very bizarre, right? He's this man who, you're like young man who grew up in the mountains. You later learn it's like the whole assassin community thing, like Kuzuki Sensei. Um, but fundamentally, you know, symbolically, he's from the natural world and has like kind of descended into human civilization, completely ignorant of it. Um, and like what he like, what how human civilization is reflected in his eyes is so fascinating and the role that magic plays in that there are multiple times i think that they make interesting comments um about how for sojudo like the magic that alco performs in the magic of a street lamp coming on at night is the same thing like technology is magic and magic is technology um, you know, it's a little bit of that kind of like Arthur C. Clarke thing of like any technology that's sufficiently advanced um, is indistinguishable from magic. It's like for Sojido, that is the world that he lives in. Um, but there's that. But then there's also like um, the whole setting of this of Misaki town, this little town that was a Jap small Japanese village that has exploded into this weird little almost kind of little metropolis that is nestled with between these hills and within this massive forested area because of the economic boom. But now that economic boom has passed and it's just sort of like stuck here in this stage of sort of like mid-development between what human settlements used to look like and what they now look like. 
um, and then you've got the forest with the the ancient English manor um, in there where Alice lives and all of her fairy tale powers um, that pull out from like the, you know the the darkness and the shadows of the forest and the corners of the human imagination and dreams. Um, and I think all of these evocative elements of dreams and imagination and the magic from that, the magic of civilization and technology, and then like the kind of simple magic of the earth and the natural world um, that has no um, ego, which is what is very much Sojudo, all that stuff coming together and blending and then coming apart and having like grown from this intersection is to me very much what the story is about. And I just came away from it really, really moved by the notion of what magic is in this world. And again, in both like literally the magic that happens, but that sort of like the magic of the power of those human relationships, as you're saying, of the, the, the slow growth that happens through those conversations and overcoming those differences and the kind of the simple magic that it happens there. Um, it's, you know, it's a beautiful Christmas game as well, because it yes. is about Christmas, right? It, the, the holy night of which on the holy night is Christmas. It's when I finished the game was on Christmas. Um, and all of those things, it's like intentionally set at that time, right? And so that is also part of the mood there and part of like what is evocative about it as well is it's all about the magic of Christmas. <laughs> Indeed, it's my new favorite Christmas game. Yes. Um, but yeah, I, you know, and I think because of the structure of the story, it also contextualizes for me some of why Nasu conceptualizes magic the way he does. I think mm -hmm. ideas like the magic circuits, and the way magic is kind of constructed almost as like a technological force makes sense yes. in this context when it is put, it is literally put in contention with the actual technology that is taken for granted by Aoko and Alice, but is brand new to Sojiro. And so, well, what's the difference between the circuit that charges up a light bulb and the magical circuits that Aoko has in her body that power the magic, right? There's things like that where I think the vocabulary used and the way things are conceived, the idea of magecraft, the not true magic, the thing that humans have kind of harnessed and almost industrialized, right? Where like mm -hmm. this is almost an apprentice craft that these girls are learning and have mag and have uh, mastered or are, are trying to, to master versus the true magic we see in the finale or hints of it we get with just the, the sheer enormity of what Alice is able to summon through her fairy tales, right? And like the things that are truly outside of the realm of like human comprehension, which I think is where true magic lies mm -hmm. uh, and Nasu's ability to, you know, gesture at that and conceive of that versus sort of, you know, there isn't actually a huge difference in some sense between the magecraft and technology in terms of how it has been sort of made normal by the mages in this world. And all of that just, that's another way it just kind of opens up, okay, this is why some of this is conceived of in this way in later stories as well, you know? Yeah, and for people who, who kind of want that explanation of the difference there between Majutsu or Magecraft in Maho, True Magic, um, depending on which like fan translations you've read, there like people have translated these terms differently a lot. Um, but fundamentally, Majutsu or Magecraft in Nasu's sort of worldview, that's the kind of normal quote unquote magic you see characters like Rin or Aoko do all the time, like shooting fireballs and stuff from your hand. Um, the, that kind of Magecraft is fundamentally using magical energy to accelerate and or exaggerate um, a, an otherwise natural process, or, or it's something you could do 
normally through the laws of like physics and science and things like that. You are just achieving it in a kind of like exaggerated fashion through magic. Maybe the most obvious example to use is like Shido's ability to create swords, right? A sword is a thing that you can make. That's like, you can do it. It's fucking hard. It takes a lot of work, um, but you can make a sword. Um, so Shido is able to use magical energy to create the sword. He just has like cut out that middleman process of having to do all the work to make it. Um, that's what Magecraft does. Um, magic, true magic, is using magical energy to achieve an end that is otherwise impossible. That is exceeds, what, as you say, human comprehension. Um, so in the instance of Mahotsukai no Yodu, that is time travel, right? Being able to change or manipulate time is a thing that you cannot do. There is no means to go back to the past. It is fundamentally possible. That you, it cannot be done no matter what um, in the normal laws of human existence. And so being able to do that, to travel through time or manipulate time, that is the realm of true magic um, that you can only access if you're, you know, from someone who has touched the root or passed that down to their successors, right? Um, and so part of the thing with Magecraft then, and this game gets into it, is that the notion of what is possible through normal human processes has changed throughout history and expanded. So the scope of what Magecraft can accomplish is greater now than it was a thousand years ago. But similarly, the realm of like true magic, the realm of fantasy and of like, as the usually like what they call mystics or Shinpi's Japanese word. Um, like the realm of the mystical and gods and monsters and stuff like that, that has coincidingly receded over that course of time. So that as science and human civilization and our understanding of the world has developed, our ability to use that kind of magecraft is actually enhanced. But our ability to understand and interact with true magic is a thing we cannot do anymore. Um, and that's one of the things that separates, for instance, in Fate Stay Night, why Medea as a caster is fundamentally different than the modern day mages is that she is from a time when that is what all magic effectively was was true magic because everything was impossible um you know like everything was so far outside of human comprehension or grasp um and so she lived in a very you know a time of mystics and the mystical um whereas now as like mahoska no yoru says um like mages think that magic is effectively dying and that eventually it will go away because science in human civilization has overtaken that and made like fantasy and dreams and the impossible have gone away because of what civilization has made feasible for humans to actually just accomplish using normal technology. Yeah, it's I, I love it. It's such an interesting presentation of magic. I think I said this on an earlier episode this season. This like blows my mind that like I myself, I'm not blaming, I'm not making a straw man here. I myself at one point in my life would have said Harry Potter is a very creative use of the idea of magic and storytelling. That's just people grab a wooden stick and say words and send energy beams out. It is so crazy how much Nasu like conceives of magic in this systemic, but also like existential way to really kind of blow your mind back in your seat while you're reading through this stuff. Yeah. Because like, because the other thing here is like, where Sojido fits in that whole schema, right? Where you've got like the humans and you have like the mystic, but the mystic is fundamentally like true magic. That's a product of humanity, right? That's the product of human dreams and human imagination. Like they give power to the impossible and the fantastical. Whereas like 
Sojido exists outside all of that because that's the realm of humanity. He's like from nature. He's like fundamentally kind of inhuman. He so exists outside of that whole scheme. Um, and that's part of, I think, what's really fascinating about it is like, to me, part of the construction here is that true magic is like what humans see in the forests, in the mountains, like at night, you know, and that's like the realm of Alice, that she is like, this is what people imagine or fear or dream about um, the forest at night. Um, but Sojudo isn't what people see of it. He's actually, he is it. He is from yes. it. He is of that world. So it's like he exists outside of those dreams and that kind of imagination. Or it's like, or he did for almost his whole life and now he's starting to get it, right? Um, like the moment of his sort of like excommunication is this moment of questioning, why am I here on this map? Like, why am I here? Why are we doing this? He has this one moment of kind of ego that exists for himself and that casts him out of this purely natural world. Um, you know, literally in the plot, it's because now he can't be used for their assassination shit. But like symbolically, it's because it's almost like Adam in the Garden of Eden or something. Yes. Like you now have self-awareness. You can't exist in this world of pure nature. You must go to the world of the humans. Um, if I love the notion that like, it's not that magic is the realm of nature. Magic doesn't exist in nature any more than it exists in normal technology. Um, it's like both of those are outside the scope of magic. It is what humans see in those things is where magic can become possible. It's about human imagination. Um, that's, I think, a really fundamental thing about the construction of these characters in the story here. Sojiro is, in, in every sense, a he's a pre-Lapsarian character fallen mm -hmm. into the real world, right? Pre-Lapsarian meaning, you know, from the Garden of Eden, from before the fall of man, right? And he, he comes out of that realm into ours, and he is in and of himself, kind of a magical force because he cannot fully be comprehended by people. Like that is, it's the turn of every Nasu story, but it is most literal here where like it is, Sojiro just presents a challenge to everyone who encounters him. They cannot understand this kid because mm -hmm. like he is relatively egoless. He does not understand modern culture. He does not understand humor. It's the thing that angers Alko about him isn't anything he does because he never does anything to her. It's the lack of doing. It is the lack of like comprehension that she has of him. This is something she cannot get her head around. Uh, it's also, I think, the thing that like Alice tries to kill him because of the basic, you know, code of magicians. But like Alice, I think, always is fairly warm towards Sojiro because I actually think she does get him on some level. Like mm -hmm. there's something about him that that prelapsarian aspect of him that like appeals to her. Uh, and Sojiro is my favorite of the Nasu protagonists. I think he is such a cool character. Obviously, he's absolutely fucking hilarious, and there are many scenes mm -hmm. that are very funny, and there are very silly character portraits of him in the game, and there's all sorts of good gags around him. Um, but also, I just think the the emotionality that you get out of this kid and the sense of melancholy you get in certain scenes, like when he has his little room in the attic that Alko gives him to be a dick because Alko is mean to him in this game. But he gets up there and it's the first place where he's felt like home because he can see the moon at night and there's no like temperature control and it feels natural to him and he is closer to the source. He is closer to nature. Um, you know, moments like that or just little moments where he will stand up for himself and realize like, you're being really mean to me right now, Alko. Like the ways I think it deconstructs parts of the Sundere archetype and all of that is fascinating. And of course, near the end, I think when he really has his like moment of growth in the church, talking to the father, that is one of my favorite scenes 
uh, in this visual novel or in anything we've watched. Um, and of course, what he does in the events of the game's finale, where he does the most badass fucking thing in the mm-hmm. history of fiction. Um, it's, it's up there on par with like uh, Doctor Who in the episode Heaven Sent. Uh, it also involves a punch. Um, it's so cool. And, you know, I just, God, I adore this character. It is such such a phenomenal character creation. Yeah, he's incredible. Like, Kobayashi Yusuke is the voice actor. He's, people would probably best know him as the main character Subaru in the series ReZero. Um, but it's a great performance because it's one of those performances where it's like the character is so mellow um, and so calm that it's like you got to get a lot of mileage out of a very limited number of emotions. Um, kind of like Alice as, as a character is a similar challenge. Um, but he gets so much, I think, emotional depth from that. Um, even when he has to become crazy killer assassin mode at the end or whatever, um, the, the way that you're able to, he's able to push it just a little bit darker, but it's still Sojiro, right? Like even like when he's intense and becoming violent, like it's still not, you know, crazy. I've like the, you know, now I'm using Ore instead of Boku and I'm just going like very <laughs> intense. You know, it's not going very far with it. It's just little nuances that push him to the different emotional places. And, but for me with, with uh, Sojiro, like the big thing with his character that I think is fascinating that they do is that he has his um, bandages around his neck that then eventually gets replaced with a collar because if you say, Aoko likes to be a fucking dick. Yes. Um, and he's got that around his neck for the whole game. Um, Alice sees what's under there once after he wakes up, um, after the, all the amusement park stuff happens. Um, but other than that, you never actually see what is under there. Yes. You never see what's on his neck. Now it implies, and my interpretation is that it's scars from, he tried to kill himself. Um, presumably when he was told to leave the mountain, he tried to kill himself in that, f- uh, field of flowers that the climax of the game is set in. Because he tries to strangle himself there and Alice stops him saying, like, are you going to leave us again once he's come back to life? Um, and that and that that scene is pulled from his memories and he's in some way pulled back to that moment. Um, but there's something about the like the willingness to sort of to keep that to keep that, you know, a secret or whatever um, and to just leave it as implication and you never show it. Um, but it is like kind of in some ways everything about his character that is like the one thing you never see about him is like he's he's a completely open fucking book 100% of the time except for this one thing um and that's again it's one of the things that gives him this angelic or almost adam in the garden of eve kind of quality that it's like it's the one scar it's the one imperfection he has um because he has other scars right he has other scars that he's fine with people seeing that he got from training on the mountains but this one moment of him again, presumably trying to kill himself and there being some scars left behind by that attempt is the one thing he doesn't show anybody. Um, It's like the one piece of shame he has. Like there's something so emotionally powerful about that. And again, the game's like willingness to let that just quietly be there and not dig into it, I think is, I I was kind of shocked by the choice to do that and how powerful that is by the end of the story. The pathos of it is overwhelming and... I agree, and it's it's one of the things that, like, this almost has to be a visual novel because it's just there in the character portrait throughout, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm curious what kind of role it played when this was just a book Nasu had written um, because it would have to be something that you would have to put in the text and remind us of, right? And when it's a visual novel, it's just this little thing ticking in the background that you're always seeing on him that is there on his body 
but is kept is is kept so close to the vest that it is never explicitly revealed to the audience. There is the the implication, as you say, um, and it is very sad because it is such a it is such a tremendously sad idea to imagine this person, of course, to imagine any person snuffing out their own life. But this this boy we've come to know and who is who has such a vitality for the world, actually, you know, even if he is relatively egoless. Um, you know, it's, it's beautiful. And I think the the way that bounces off of Alko, who is such a wonderful pair to him because she is so phenomenally different and mm-hmm. obviously a, a clear prototype for later characters in the Nasuverse, but also just, again, one of my favorite protagonists. Um, and, you know, honestly kind of embodies the sort of uh, tsundere thing more even than Rin Tosaka, who is the person, mm-hmm. if you Google tsundere, her picture comes up. Aoko is very much that figure. But, of course, because we are in her head and because of the twists and turns of this story, it, it gets picked apart in such fascinating ways. Um, you know, in this in this case, you mentioned Yusuke Kobayashi's performances, Sojiro, and again, wonderful. And then you have as as Aoko, you have Haruka Tomatsu, who is uh, again just a to, like to me an immediately iconic performance. Like just like mm-hmm. that is a I cannot wait to hear her voice her in the movies and any other you know projects they have coming up with Aoko because she is tremendous. Yeah, and and you know it is a a recast because um, while the original Tsukihime was not voice acted, some of the spinoffs have been. I mean, Alko is also a character, recurring character in those spinoffs like Melty Blood. Um, but obviously, like it makes sense to try to recast the character, particularly for this. Although she does, um, I, I it was weirdly emotional when I started playing the Tsukihime remake, and that's where Alko shows up in the prologue of that game. She's got she brings to Shiki, who is the main character of Tsukihime. He's got the mystic eyes of death perception, like the Shiki of um, Garden of Sinners. Um, and Alko brings him glasses that allow him it's the same kind of glasses that toko has that allows him to block the the mystic guys of death, death perception so he doesn't go insane by seeing death and everything in the world and he's like an eight-year-old boy um and it's like a really great scene that's very powerful and it's the first thing that haruka tomatsu played as Alko because that remake came out a year before this game um and i find that fascinating i'm curious at what point that those casting choices were made like if they knew that this was in the pipeline and they're like, well, we're if we're, we want to cast someone who's going to be able to play the young Aoko super well because she's supposed to be like thirty something in Tsukihime. Um, but regardless of how it came about, is great casting. Haruka Tomatsu, people best know as Asuna, the main female character from the Sword Art Online franchise. She's also for us Haru in Persona Five would be a big touchstone for us. Which blows um, my fucking mind because yeah. it's such a different performance than Aoko, like like diametrically yes. different. Um, but yes, one of my favorites in Persona Five. Yeah, and and Alka's just like the most classic fucking Nasu character, um, and because she really in the Tsundere archetype, um, she definitely leans on the Tsun side, which is like the pointy or thorny side. Like she is, like she's an unpleasant person. Like if you yes. knew her in your life, you'd fucking hate her goddamn guts because she's like deeply unpleasant. You understand why she's unpleasant, and like you see like where she comes from because you're in her head. But I do think that, like, the game doesn't, like, excuse that behavior. Um, And I think that's one of the things I love about it is that it recognizes it's, like, she is, like, needlessly and intentionally cruel to a lot of the people in her lives because she's sort of, like, projecting all this stuff outwards. Um, She's a kid. She's a dumb kid. And you, like, I think also playing this with, and it obviously being written with the, like, it's a nostalgic piece. I think it's looking Mm -hmm. back at adolescence. And there is a, there's a 
the thorniness and a brusqueness to her that I think a lot of people will probably recall from their own adolescence. Yeah. There's something just she, she needs to grow up. And she does grow up over the course of the game. She becomes a markedly better person over the course of this game. Yeah, you know. through her interactions with Sojido, because, you know, it's the classic thing of her and Sojido are opposites and they learn from what the other person has. Sojido lacks too much ego. Aoko has too much ego. Um, and so they learn how to sort of like meet more in the middle. And, you know, it's a classic plot construction, but it works incredibly well here um, because the characters are so well drawn and they fit into the overall themes of the story so perfectly. Um, but yeah, but then also on that note, Jonathan, of this specifically feeling more like it's an intentionally nostalgic piece, like it very much is. Because the thing, the thing that's really notable about Mahos Kanda Yodu is it is the only Nasu thing I can think of that is not set in the year that it comes out. Like right. not only just as the visual novel, but even the original draft novel was written in 1996. Um, and, and as far as I know, that was also originally set in 1989. Um, so it is like, very specific, like so much so that the Tsukihime remake updated the setting to be in 2021, um, including like all the changes that would come with the story of now people have cell phones and the internet's much more ubiquitous and all that kind of stuff is now integrated into that story. Um, because for most Type Moon stories, I think very intentionally want it to be set exactly in the present moment, down to often the month when it comes out. Like there's a reason why this came out in uh, December and Christmas. Uh, that was the same thing with the original release. This was a 10 year anniversary release. Um, you know, Fate's Day Night is set in the exact month that it was originally released in. And they changed the text of the game to update that when the game originally got delayed for a year. Um, and so it is very intentional that this is set in 1989. It is specifically nostalgic. Um, and Alco is a character that you would understand many of the members of the audience will know her much better in the way she looks at the end of this game with like the shocking red hair um, and like taller and more adult and confident. Um, and this is like, how did she become that person is a certain way you can look at the story. Um, like not for us because we didn't really encounter it exactly that way. A little bit for me, but more through like reading wikis and not through actually playing Tsukihime. But now that I've played Tsukihime and seen that version of her, this is very much a story of like, how does this person who's able to guide the main character of that game at this young age and give him this advice that changes his whole life. How does she become this like incredible, like wizard or magician, like someone who can wield magic, not just by casting spells, but with like her words and her actions and how she carries herself. And you see the seeds of all that at the end of this game of how she becomes that person. Yeah. And the Tsukihime remake, correct me if I'm wrong, updating the timeline also means that it can more clearly serve as a like piece of this universe because otherwise yes. the timeline would not make sense in the 1999 version because that would be like 10 years ago for the main character. She wouldn't be old enough, you know, all of that, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 That's that's part of it as well. And But obviously, you know, in the original Tsukihime, Aoko is a character that nobody knew about. Yes, exactly. They, they didn't have to worry about it, but now it made sense to kind of rejigger all of that so it can all mm -hmm. serve. Um, Garden of Sinners lines up really interestingly, and I'm excited to talk about Toko, but we should probably uh, talk about some of these other characters first because she comes in at the end. Um, because you also have Alice, who... Does Alice show up anywhere else in the Nasuverse so far? No, the most is there's a there's a character in part two of Fate Grand Order, which I did not know any of this stuff when I played that part of that game, um, that is broadly connected to Alice through the like witchcraft, the Meisters, like that stuff comes up there in Fate Grand Order. Alice is a character that this is the only thing she appears in, um, which is yeah. a shame because she's fucking great. 
Um, she's fucking I great. She's ludicrously powerful, terrifyingly powerful. She's like, when we meet her, obviously, I think uh, you, you could argue Alco overtakes her at the end of the story. But like uh, up until that point, I mean, she is one of the most immediately like overwhelmingly powerful characters we've met in the Nasu verse uh, voiced by Kana Hanazawa. Just a great performance. Again, kind of like Sojiro having to do a lot with a very narrow range of emotion. Um, but yeah, what a cool character. And her magic powers are the coolest fucking thing because one of the things about the structure of this game is that it's got a very slow opening before you get to the big fireworks of chapter five and six at the amusement park and up until that point magic is mentioned you're in the pov of alco you know it exists but it's abstract it's it's very just daily life you know slice of life stuff for a little while but there is this um optional text but don't treat any of the text in this game as optional read it all as it comes up and there's this little piece called seven days of spinning and in there is an episode where you see from the perspective of one of the things alice is killing alice's attack on it from the like yeah. perspective and you are introduced to the nursery rhymes and diddle diddle and all of that stuff and like that little hint of like here's what's coming motherfuckers is so terrifying and then you get the full version of it in chapters five and six uh with her you know humpty dumpty spell and flat snark and all of that stuff and it is the coolest use of magic in all of the nasiverse i think that i've seen at least it is so fucking crazy yeah it's it's amazing like one i just gotta give a massive shout out to hanazawa kana um for the performance because she's one of my favorite voice actresses and this is the, such a like the like golden period of Hanazawa Kana, like that like early 2010s where she was in fucking everything. This feels like a character pulled right from that period of her career. Um, not to say she's like done great work ever since then as well, but this specifically reminds me of that period of her. Um, and it's my favorite vocal performance in this game. I think it's incredible. The amount of emotion she's able to get out and the comedy, like particularly in the, uh, the wonderful world of ploys, like the weird sort of optional comedy segments. That yes, exist. she's um, so amazing in those. Yeah, where she's opposite Robin, like the amount of comedy she gets out of that is fucking incredible. Um, it's such a great performance. But yes, the, I think the thing with Alice that's fascinating is she throws this like crazy wrench into the whole construction of magic in this world because what she's doing, and the game like comments on this multiple times, is like, is basically on the verge of true magic. It's maybe not exactly true magic, but it's like right about there. It's like pushing the boundaries of what really like should be allowed by these rules. And, you know, and the other mages like Alko and Toko comment on it. That it's like, she's kind of a freak, right? She, she is a witch specifically. This is one of the reasons why I don't like the English title, even though I know that the English title originally was made by Nasu for the original release. Like it's in the original logo. It's the Attack on Titan thing. It just got grandfathered in our Garden of Sinners. It's the same kind of thing. Um, but here, there's a difference between Alko and Alice. In the title, Witch on the Holy Night, yes, Alko is the witch of that title. Um, but she's not a witch. Alice is a witch. Like, she, like what she is doing is fucked up and weird and crazy, even to the people <laughs> in the world of magic. They're like, what the... F like, what are these ploys? Like, are those familiars? Do those count? Like, how does this work? Um, you know, and they're supposed to be kind of like, you know, they're remnants of, you know, a more mystical time, right? And they're these like fragments of fairy tales and nursery rhymes um, that human imagination has given shape and power to um, that then is being used as a familiar by Alice's family for generations. 
Um, but it's like pushing the boundaries of what magic can do. And I think it's like a cool, interesting, like weird turn to give it. That's like you have, you know, this very ordered idea of magic and the rules that Alco gives you and that her shit follows. But then you've got Alice is just out here doing crazy shit um, that like is outside the boundaries of what the rules consider normal. And I do think that that's like important to kind of like mix things up and make it sort of to keep the mystery there or something like it, it to keep that kind of mystical quality there, especially because I think it like pairs with Sojudo's whole mountain boy thing really well. Yes, it's it's such a fascinating character triad because Alko is the most normal of the three, even though she's yes. an asshole. She is like she's a, she also fits the student council president archetype. Mm-hmm. Like if you've seen like you know Kaguya-sama Love Is War, she has a lot of similarities with that character. Uh, who I know Kaguya isn't the student council president, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah, same someone thing. who's like the, the type A like leader of the student body. She's got all of that, um, you know. But she's the normal girl. Like we all went to school with people like Alko, whether you went to Japan or America. Like I remember people who remind me of Alco, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, Sojiro and Alice are the fucking weirdos, you know, because Alice is a witch who lives up on a mountain in a a fucking mansion, and to her, like, that is normal. And she does scary magic stuff, and it is very scary. Like, that scene in the Seven Days of Spinning optional text, the the fucking, like, it is like body horror at a certain point where you've got, like, the things being torn apart and, like, Alice is a little sadistic in how she does it. All of that is amazing. But then there is this opposite beauty to her. And one of my absolute favorite, like, top five moments in this visual novel is this scene, the series of scenes, really, where Sojiro comes home. And he's been given this task by Alko of, like, just try to get along with Alice a little more. Because this could go south <laughs> really fast if Alice... Because there's this whole period where they're, like, poisoning Sojiro to keep him on a leash, basically, and all yes. this stuff. They're very mean. Um, and he comes in... And he sees Alice sleeping on the floor with her book, and she's leaning up against a a banister. And there's a bespoke animation for it and everything. There's a big character portrait for this image, because we come back to it a couple of times. The the line when he finds her, this is some of my favorite writing in the whole thing, is, There she slept in the shadows of home, hidden away from outsiders. Her sleeping figure was enough to mesmerize anyone who laid eyes upon her. Um... And, and later on, it says, her slumber seemed breathless. She was too still, with not even a hint of movement, and yet slumped against that frigid column under the cold winter sky. Happiness appeared to be her blanket. A passerby would not be blamed for thinking she was in that most peaceful state of eternal slumber, death. And I love the whole connection between, like, Alice and Sojiro in some ways are coded very similarly in that their stoicness kind of takes them closer to the root, you could say, right? Yes. Um, And uh, there is a, like, awkward, dark, interesting, seductive beauty to that, to that, like, ability to sort of be still and unknowable. And even though Alice does not come out and say it in this sequence, where what ends up happening is Sojiro makes tea to the best of his ability. Alice is a tea snob and he's doing what he can, but he makes tea, he brings it out, he gets one of his books out and he just studies, sits next to Alice, has the tea out. If she wakes up, he'll give her some. She doesn't wake up and eventually he leaves and then he comes back the next day and does it again. Alice becomes aware of this and it's it's very clearly a turning point where like she doesn't say it, but he gets her and that means she gets him. And from that point on, like... 
honestly, Alice and Sojourner are pretty tight. It, it leads mm-hmm. to another one of my favorite scenes in the book when he rescues her. And there's another, you know, animation of this of him carrying her on his back up the mountain. And there is a there's a solidness there, a friendship, a love that is is really beautiful and mostly communicated between the lines. But I absolutely love it. Yeah, it's yeah, it's phenomenal and alice is the character to me that like was kind of a revelation of this game just because it's because because she's the character that i didn't really know anything about like i knew about sojido from osmosis i particularly knew a lot about alco from osmosis of other type moon stuff and reading about it online um but alice was a character that like i kind of knew the name like i was aware that this that a character like this existed in the game um but actually playing it was like why is Alice not in everything? Like, how is she not a character in Fate Grand Order? Like, how have they not just sort of, you know, and part of it is like maybe now um, with like the movie they're making and they've got Hannah Zalkana playing the character, maybe now they're like, why? how have we been sleeping on this character? She's so good because she should be even, they should fucking exploit the shit out of this character because she is that good. Um, and they just need to put her in a lot of other stuff because I want to see more Alice. Well, they've. I know Tight Moon said way back in like 2012 that they were planning sequels to this game at some point, and those have never materialized. I'm very curious if that's something that is still in the works. It would be fascinating to me to see what would be the the next chapter in this story, especially because so many pieces of it have branched off into other pieces of the of the Nasuverse. Yeah, but Alice is the like the one character that's just like you gotta come on, get her out of yeah. here. Like I gotta get more Alice, please. One character we definitely got more of elsewhere is Toko. Yes. And uh, how how fun was it to see younger Toko in her mode, in her in her trash phase as a villain before she mellows out for Garden of Sinners? It in many ways she's a very different character here, and in many ways she is very recognizable. And as a compliment, as a prequel to the character we see in Karano Kyokai, that alone makes this fucking essential playing, essential reading if you have seen Karano Kyokai. Yeah, it is the thing that in many ways I was I've always been most excited about of the idea of actually reading Witch on the Holy Night is because I love Toko from Kano Kyokai so much and I knew that she's the villain of this game. And it's just like that's fucking great. Like that's yes. such a cool idea. Um and it, it's like amazing to me how well it does connect. You know, um, one thing that is um, different, although I think that who they got was very good. They did recast the role, which makes sense. Um, it's been a long time. Uh, Takako Honda um, is who played her in the original movies. She's also not usually in a lot of anime stuff. She, as we talked about in those podcasts, she does a lot more like live action dubbing and stuff like that. I suspect that is, might be also one of the reasons why the character was recast. Um, but Nudiko Aoki, who plays her here, does a very good job of evoking the, a similar performance without doing like, uh, you know, an imitation or anything like that. Like it's, it's its own performance, but still feels like the same character. And I was a little bit worried when I heard that it was recast, um, but then I don't think it, it doesn't negatively affect it at all. Um, it works really well. And the character just, I think, syncs up completely with the character from Kano Kyokai. You know, understanding that the character from Kano Kyokai is, what, like seven something years later, um, seven, eight, nine years later. So she's grown up um, and she's sort of learned from the experiences she has and being kind of humbled at the end of this and giving up on this idea of inheriting the Aozaki 
magic and inheriting that true magic. And that's something she has moved past by the time of Garden of Sinners. Um, and when you kind of connect the dots in that whole character arc, it's really good and it's really cool. And it, and it hooks up with other stuff that we're not going to cover here that she appears in other like side of side stories and things and other type of stuff. Um, Cause Toka is a character that pops up kind of everywhere. Um, and it's, it was very satisfying to see this origin kind of story for that character where she originally comes from and that she can be a fucking utterly terrifying villain but you still like her. Like, you still, yes. like, kind of want to see her succeed in some way. Like, for her to learn and grow and, like, kind of become a more happy person and to move past this is something you're very satisfied to see. Like, you're very relieved when Sojudo prevents Aoko from killing Toko. Both because you know that Aoko shouldn't kill her own sister, um, that that would tear her apart. But that also Toko should be allowed to live. That, like, she can do good things in this world um, if she's able to grow past this point. Yeah, because the Toko we meet in Kara no Kyokai is someone who has kind of, is living a nomadic life, right? She has yes. given up on the, the idea of major ambitions. We talked about that a lot in those episodes, that she's someone who uh, is very much the opposite of the, of the main villain of that piece, and that she does not, only, you know, she thinks it's a bad idea to go after the root. That is not something she wants to do. Does She does not want to use her powers for these grand ambitions. What she's doing is honestly pretty modest, you know, in terms mm -hmm. of, like, the stakes we've seen in this universe. It's this small series of investigations. It's heavily implied she moves on from this area after the end of, you know, episode the seventh film, um, all of that stuff. And I think going back, rewinding the clock to seeing a period when she did have major ambitions, which is hinted at in Kara no Kyokai, that she was yeah. not always this way, right? And I think seeing her doing something as devious as the bad guys in uh, Garden of Sinners in many ways, um, you know, she's trying to kill her own sister. Like, it's, it's evil shit she's up to in this game. Um, but she still has all of the charisma, all of the intellect. The writing on her is very similar. Um, I agree with you completely about the performance. It's It's... Because uh, I've rewatched recently the first couple episodes of Kara no Kyokai, and I noticed, okay, this is a different voice, but I like hearing the two versions of the character, kind of younger and older, and how they sync up, and they both reflect different pieces of the character. What comes through, of course, is that is that confidence, is that playfulness, is that little spark in her eyes, like, she could fucking destroy you at any time if she wanted to. Yeah. In Kara no Kyokai, mostly she doesn't want to. Here, she very much does, and that makes her a very intimidating villain. But I do just love seeing how all of the pieces come together, and there's so much fun prequelizing for her of, of how she gets to the place that she is in the future. You know, she is still a puppet master in this one. All the little puppets yep. that they fight, that's her inventions. That's what she's good at. They uh, imply, you know, she has the familiar in Lou Beowulf here. Eventually, she doesn't have him anymore, and that's how she gets, you know, a new apprentice and familiar in Karno Kyokai. Um, all of those things are just fun to kind of connect the dots with. But also, just I think on a character level, seeing her be humbled from this ambition and start the process of letting go is is great i also love the detail that this is given to us in the extra uh the danganronpa-esque mystery at the end of the game that you unlock which is that oh yeah she figured out how to come back because she's cursed by alko at the end of this game to not set foot in misaki city oh, yes 
And she gets past that very easily because she just builds a double. And it's very strongly implying that the second body that she has in Karano Kyokai that comes up in episode five in Paradox Spiral, she built to be able to mm-hmm. uh, you know, lift that restriction. And she does come back to Misaki City. Uh, and that's kind of the, the origin point of her p- making the perfect puppet and all of that. That's such a cool detail that I love. Yeah, that blew my mind that when they threw that in. I was yes. like, oh my god, that's where she mastered her full puppet arts. And it's like, is that also when she bought the second identical red sports car for her <laughs> puppet party too? Like, when did that happen? I want the origin story of that car, the the two cars that she bought. Um, yeah, that was awesome. Also, just think the the scene where she's fully introduced. There's a scene where she's kind of teased, which is also very fun, where she's at the um parlor or whatever and she's just gambling at the slot machine or the pachinko parlor i think it is and she's just like making infinite money basically and so just sees her in bolts like that's a very good scene but then later she comes to the manor um and comes in and has that conversation with sojourner and that's where she's fully introduced and that's where they you know they just walk such a good line between her being scary and intimidating and villainous while also you can see that they're still good in her, right? Like yes. she could have easily killed Sojudo and she has every reason in the world to, based on what her goals are, to just kill this kid right here. But she doesn't. Um, and, you know, as she says later, it's like, you know, probably she should have because she underestimated him. And eventually that's what kind of throws everything for a loop for her plans. Um, but like that goodness is also then what gets her life spared ultimately. Um, and yes. so it's it's just a good line that they walk where you can see this more caring person that we know from Kata no Kyokai hidden there beneath all the ambition and villainy. Another additional chapter you unlock after the main mm-hmm. scenario is uh, the honey adventure or however they translate it. Yes. Which is basically through Beowulf's eyes, you see the month of December uh, of, of Toko behind the scenes scheming. And I think you see a much sadder version of the character of this person who is kind of doing this because she has no uh, like almost on autopilot like Mm -hmm. this is like i don't know if she actually wants this or she wants it because her ego has been bruised or something you know and like it's it's really interesting to see you know you have a couple of major scenes there the biggest one is her with father eri and that whole scenario where you see that they were in love at one point that has kind of fallen away for her but also i think just she is so kind of cold to human connection at this point and is something that needs to be reawakened in her uh you also have the absolutely hilarious detail that she is going to the pachinko parlor every day and winning all this money to buy food for beowulf and other supplies and that is how she is funding this whole operation is she just comes to misaki city fucking broke and then goes and cleans up at the pachinko parlor which is the most toko aozaki detail i think you could possibly come up with yeah it's amazing and yeah like the that's that chapter is incredible because you get as you say this like real sense of who she is underneath all of this and how lost she is because you know if you think about what happened like she had this whole plan for her life that was totally reasonable based on the way that mage families work that she was going to inherit this and all this kind of stuff and and be the the successor of the Aozaki line and that was taken from her and she lost her whole family right like how could you be with your family after that has happened like she has no choice but to leave and so her whole connection to that town that was like what she was meant to inherit um in her all her relationships there her relationship to her sister her grandfather her parents all that is gone 
Um, and she goes into the clock tower and studies there and meets some assholes there that, you know, eventually will, she will help kill um, like 10 years down the line. Um, and then she just goes and travels the world. And what like it makes sense that the only thing she can think to do is like plot this weird elaborate revenge because it's like she's got nothing. Um, because they're weird, disembodied, inhuman, grandfather spirit dude who's, you know, touched the root and all that kind of stuff has decided this for reasons nobody understands, Um, right? Like, it makes sense that this is who she's become. And it is really sad to see the way that she sort of, like, loosely is kind of rediscovering some of those connections from, like, the supporting cast at the church and stuff in that chapter. It's really well done. It's beautiful. Uh, here's just an excerpt from that chapter I want to read really quick. This is one screen. Um, this is Bayo's observation of her. Toko's personality changed significantly depending on whether or not she was wearing her glasses. Bayo wasn't sure which side was her true self, but he did know that she was much more serious and cruel without her glasses. It wasn't quite to the level of a split personality, more like a reordering of priorities. She mainly took off her glasses when she was about to fight someone. Doing so made her less human it pushed all sense of compromise, concern, and sympathy out of her brain. I love that moment. Because this is a character also who, like, whose visual presence is so striking. The costume they've got her in for this with, like, the big or- like green overcoat and all of that is so striking. Uh, and then, of course, you think, too, her, her glasses are such a warm part of her in Kara no Kyokai. It's something that, like, kind of makes you feel safe around her. And mm-hmm. I just, all of it is so interesting. Yeah, you also have the great detail of the hair right and that like you know the hair contains some of like your magic or whatever and so you know with the the female mages grow out their hair and she has cut her hair so she has this like short haircut um which i always knew that this character this era of the character had this character design but i did not know there was a plot reason behind it and i thought that was also um really cool Yes. And of course, she's got an ace up her sleeve because she has Lou Beowulf, who coming back to the themes you were talking about earlier, Sean, with like, you know, nature versus civilization versus technology. She's literally summoned like this. He's not the actual Beowulf. He's not an actual werewolf. He is like a 3000 year old incarnation of like the spirit of nature itself. He is yes, one of he's the most earth spirit. Yeah. Yes. He is one of the most powerful beings we have encountered in the Nasuverse, And the only thing that can beat him is like the idea of mortality itself, which is what, um, Sojiro winds up inflicting upon him in an amazing fucking scene. Yeah. Yeah. Beowulf is an awesome character. This is a character I've known about for a long time because he's referenced in other things. Um, and yeah, and it was very fun to see him. And they particularly get a lot of good mileage out of him in some of those optional events like the Honey yes. Adventure and stuff at the end. Um, but yes, as I say, he like he does represent like the magic that does exist in nature. Like he is a naturally occurring mystical entity, the one of which that like very few still exist in this world. Um, you know, to the extent where human based magic can do nothing against him, um, because he exists outside the realms of human magic. Um, and so you know, for those early parts of when of his like sort of entry into the story is really upsetting and frightening. Like yes. when he's fighting Alice um, and Alka, like they get completely destroyed by him. Um, and it's oh, really God, the, graphic. 
the details of what happens to Alco, you never see it, but yeah. what is written and like implied, and there's this whole scene where Sojiro goes to see her at the church where she is being worked on, and there's the talk about like what it like her body like the implication is that her body is just completely torn apart. Yeah. And like sewing her back together, like there's blood everywhere. There's it's it's one of the most like graphic things I've ever seen described, and it is so horrifying. And of course, attest to like the whole idea of magic and how it kind of keeps the body together is is very mind bending. But yeah, he is terrifying in this deep primal way. And of course, what makes Sojiro the thing that Toko could never count on is that Sojiro is from the same world, basically. Yeah. And so he is the only one who would ever even have the thought, I could just punch this thing. And he does a little more than that. He times it in such a way that he does this like assassin punch to like stop the heart, you know. Um, and he does that and he successfully like explodes Beowulf's heart. But by God, what a fucking moment that is. Yeah, and he, you know, completely rips his own arm, arm and off, yes. elbow apart by doing it. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, he punches the heart, and then there's a, I think my favorite shot, because because it's basically a shot, it's it's so well done, it basically is just animated, is him then shifting around um, to behind Beowulf and elbowing him in the back at the same point where the heart is to do the crazy assassin strike or whatever. Yes. Um, but yeah, like, that's an incredible sequence and that's probably like the most impressive sequence to me just in terms of the construction of it as a visual novel where it's like it's pushing the boundaries of like is this just an animation at this point just like with a very small number of frames um because it's really good um yeah that whole sequence is awesome and this is also where it's like worth mentioning i did find it very interesting that um you know that sojido is connected or like implicitly connected to the kuzuki sensei stuff from fate's day night um, Unlimited Blade works, right? That they both seemingly came from the same uh, assassin camp in the mountains, which has never been like specifically expanded upon. It's mysterious in Fate's Day Night as well. Um, even if you read the visual novel, where, like exactly what all that stuff was. Um, it's But it's described in much the same way that Sojiro describes it at the end of Mahotsuki no Yoru. And also the detail of Sojiro's name, Sojiro, Kuzuki's, uh, well, and it's Shizuki Sojiro, and then it's Kuzuki Soichiro, um, with Ichi meaning one, Ju meaning ten. Um, so it's like presumably they are all have some sort of similar name with numbers one through ten and maybe more um, in that assassin camp. Like that was something I had not caught on to at all um, until I got to the end of the game. It was like, oh, he does have like an almost identical name to Soichiro from Fate Stay Night. That is crazy. That is. Um, and of course, the real world history of that is that Sojudo's character idea for Amahotsuka no Yoru was reused for Sojudo Kuzuki in Fate Stay Night. And so that's like how that originally came about. But I like that they've kind of rewrapped it up here. Yeah, it's it's super interesting. The whole scene in the final chapter when they're on that moonlit walk in the snow and he he talks about this. It's so tender. It's so painful because... You know, whatever, like, the lore explanation, to me it very much reads as, like, a background of abuse almost. Like, it's mm -hmm. it's a really painful, like, but it's both, it's abuse in that childlike sense of, like, it's all he knew. And so he was connected to it, but he also knew on some level it was wrong. Like, what they yes. were asking him to do and training him to be. And I think then the, the suicide idea that is implied there as well. And I think Alko is very much aligned with the reader at that point of realizing, oh my God, this 
this kid is actually much more complex than I thought. Like this is mm-hmm. the the simplicity of him today comes from a a ringer of emotional like abuse and complexity that I could not have imagined or fathomed. You know, um, she mm-hmm. is she is uh, what's the word? Um, uh, I'm sorry, uh, privileged in a way that like. Mm-hmm. I think she could not have imagined in in relation to Sojuro until that scene. And it is so powerful to come through. And I think the way, you know, it takes until the very end for him to open up about this and and talk about it at all. And again, it's still in very vague terms. And it's still something he is coming to terms with. And I think all of that is just, again, tender is like the word I keep coming back to because I think it is so thoughtful and empathetic and beautiful. Yeah, I think it it has so much weight and meaning because... They've done such a good job of making Sojido feel like a character who, as long as you think to ask him the question, he will tell you anything. Um, and I think he kind of just thinks of himself that way. But in reality, there is these couple of little spots where he doesn't want to do it and he doesn't want to tell it. And he is hiding them in his own little way. And the, obviously the scar on the neck, whatever it is, is the most obvious one. But it's there as well with the exact nature of this community that he grew up in, he's kind of given these sort of half explanations as people have asked him questions about it throughout the whole game. And it's not until the very end, as you say, that he can kind of like actually face up to it and actually open up about it and and recognize it for what it is, which it is like what he was put through is inhuman. He was raised to be something that is not human. And that's wrong because he is a human. Like he should have these connections. He should be connected to the rest of human society. Um, and and it is like it is abuse what was done to him and alco and alice have been too and i think they learned yeah. that from him because that's what that's what the whole fucking mage association is that's what this yes. whole world of magic is too they are asking these people to be inhuman like what alco goes to that amusement park to do to sojiro like she's an asshole but she's not a murderer right mm-hmm. and that is the line that she's she finds herself trying to cross and she is being asked to kill this pure innocent nice boy who has never done a single goddamn thing to her and that is part of why she is so angry at him is because she cannot find a reason to justify the awful thing she's been tasked to do here and of course by the end of the game they've subtly broken with the mage's code at a certain point yes. right like they are living their own lives away from it um, and, you know, one of the touches I love is there's this little epilogue that, that plays after the credits that is a couple months later, and it's from Alko's point of view, where she finds this book in the library with the memory-erasing spell. And she's like, oh, we finally found it. And then she realizes Alice was reading this book months ago. Yeah. Alice knew the entire fucking time and didn't do it. And I love that little detail that, like, I think Alice and Alko both, without ever saying it, came into a conception of their own human morality separate from this magical world they were raised in and and all three of these people are more human and more moral and more good by the confrontation with each other than they were at the start of the piece yeah absolutely it's an incredibly touching ending yeah where because especially because alice compared to alko like she feels like she's the real deal right she's the one who's like alko has been kind of like you know, shanghai into this world a couple of years ago. <laughs> Alice was just grown up, but this is her whole life. Um, and so she, you 100% believe, where she in Alka's position, Sojo would have been fucking dead 
immediately. Like, it would have been absolutely over. That dude would have been eaten by, like, a weird fucking fairytale crocodile or some shit. <laughs> um, like, it would be over. Um, Alco, like, Alice has almost certainly murdered other people. Like, arguably, that might have been a person. It's not clear if it was, like, a person or a familiar or what she killed in the, like, that one side story you talked about earlier. Um, but Alco hasn't crossed that line, and she's, you know, you can kind of feel that she's still on the boundaries of this world. But so to learn that Alice has for months been like keeping this a secret and she hid the book, right? She like put it up like on this really high shelf where nobody would see it. Um, and then and Alka finds it and then puts it back. Um, like the fact that she was hiding that for him is a really powerful and touching um, ending for sure. Yeah, it's so beautiful. Um, another couple of just like favorite scenes I want to talk about while we're here. Um, I think we hit most of the big ones. There's one you unlock. It's technically, again, if you have not played this yet, Every time something unlocks in the archive, go read it in order. It's yes. it's so it so enriches it. And there's one around halfway through that is a chapter called Martha that might be my favorite single chapter in the whole game, uh, or not chapter. It's a sub piece of a chapter that's optional. Um, but it basically is consists of two parts. One is a story that uh, Kumari, also called Kuma in the game, tells mm -hmm. about the the last of this kind of pigeon in North America that was hunted to the point where there was only one known left in existence named Martha and it died and it's about the like death of a the final you know breed of something and it is also where we get our first real encounter with Robin the blue Robin who in a fun little trick for that first half of the game it will chirp and if you go into the text log and hit the dialogue it'll have a fully voiced line in mm -hmm. Japanese that you can hear. But in that, uh, in that chapter, you start hearing it actually talking and actually speaking and, and it gets translated for you. Uh, and so it is both the funniest chapter in the game and one of the most just incredibly touching, some of Nasu's most poetic prose, uh, that is like a absolute standout for me that is like a little literary masterwork on its own fucking like scale. Yeah, it's basically its own little, like, pocket short story. Yeah, and it's one of the best pieces of writing in the whole game for sure. And I think one thing that's fascinating about it is, like, Sojiro's reaction, right? Where I think you would normally expect that his reaction to hearing this whole story about the extinction of this pigeon species would be that, like, that he would be the one most offended by it. That he would be the one most affected by it because he's the one from nature, Right. It's like he's like the pigeons. Right. He's from this world that is being extinguished by human civilization. Um, but that's not the reaction he has at all. Like he's kind of like, oh, that's interesting. Like, you know, it's like, huh. And that's it. Like, because being from nature, he doesn't have the framework with which to condemn the action of causing an extinction of an entire species. Like that's a human reaction. That's a human perspective to have is to say that this is wrong or this is horrifying. Whereas like Sojiro is like, well, I guess that's what happened. And that's his whole reaction to it. And I think that that's like, it's like really fascinating. And it puts him into perspective of how much he is from that world that to him, the notion of the species going extinction has no real moral or ethical association with it. Um, and that it's not the reaction that Kuma was expecting either. Um, I think that's like one of the things that's makes it as effective as it is, is it, it surprises you with what it reveals about Sojiro's perspective and how he sees himself and sees the world around him yeah and of course then you also get the fucking is that like a kansai accent the robin has it's like a comedy accent yeah i don't, I don't think it's really a kansai accent it's just like a very exaggerated crazy okay. 
Um, like it feels like he moves through different dialects to try to do like for different comedy purposes, but it didn't read to me as a Kansai dialect. Yeah. The, that's the one place where I feel like the translation, they brought in the fucking Dragon Quest people or something, because most <laughs> of this translation is very straightforward. And then you get the Robin who they have talking in this like crazy Cockney accent, I guess. But it totally feels like something from one of the Dragon Quest localizations. And it's very funny to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's making like weird pop culture references and shit all the time. So right. it's definitely like one of those... Well, fuck. It's it's one of those I imagine if you're translating, you get handed this character, you're like, oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's like what, what what I do with this guy. Oh Jesus. And then of course you have the Naze Nani Ploy sections, yeah. which is the wonderful world of ploys. And I love that opening. Naze, which basically just means like what, why ploy, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. And that is the it's the bird, it's the robin, and it is Alice together, and those are great. Um, they have yeah, the little like sponsor cards at the end. <laughs> yeah, like that's basically this game's version of because there aren't um, bad endings in this game because there aren't any choices. Um, Tsukihime and Fate Stay Night all have both have similar things that whenever you get a bad ending, there's a like comedy sequence that plays. <laughs> um, for Fate Stay Night, that's where you get this like weird version of Fujimoto Sensei and Ilya as student number one who would give you advice on how to avoid death. Um, and then in Tsukihime, I'm getting that it's, it's seal and, uh, Neko arc, but yes, this is, I like that they have kept the tradition and it's similar where it's like, it's kind of drawn in a different art style and it's weird and it's goofy and it's totally non-canonical, just out there, crazy bullshit. <laughs> uh, but it's fucking hilarious. Yep. Uh, and, and speaking of another big scene we should talk about, uh, I realized we haven't added, we've talked around the edges of it. Um, Alko transporting herself. 10 years into the future with the fifth oh, yeah. magic. Jesus Christ, Sean. That is a that's a that's a pretty big mic drop of a sequence. <laughs> yeah, I mean what you were talking about earlier with like that by the end Alco and Alice have basically like left the rules of the Mages Association which are inhuman in similar ways as to the situation that Sojodo has grown grown up in. Like that's the moment where she does it, right? That she for for something that the Mage Association would 100% think is a completely trivial reason, she uses, you know, true magic to fuck with time and to, and I love this, like, how it describes it of, like, how impossible and insane it is. And she's having to, like, move time to, like, oh, this moment has to now go to the end of all of existence, to the heat death of the universe. And I'm going to pull energy from this moment in time to make this happen. And it's because... You can tell how much it's like, yes, she's using magic to do something that's impossible, but she's having to push against the boundaries of possibility the entire time and how much like reality feels like it's shattering by her having to do this. And that if like one wrong step and it feels like all of existence will like snuff out because it's like you are treading into some territory nobody's meant to fuck with, right? This is what it means to like reach the root and start fucking with that shit is like the whole world might just completely fall apart any second. Um, but she's doing it to save Sojiro's life, right? Um, which is who's the person that she's meant to have been like killed fucking weeks ago. Um, but, you know, now she like loves him, maybe not in a romantic way that however you interpret that, but certainly loves him as a friend and as a companion. Um, and is literally will move heaven and earth to bring him back and save his life. Um, that's like the true climax of the game, right? Is, is finally she overcomes her fear of like of death and this like sort of red specter that appears whenever she starts to tread 
into the realm of using her real magic. Um, and she overcomes all that to save this boy. It's a, it's an incredible scene. It's, it's so spectacular in terms of the presentation and the weird imagery of like galaxies and the universe and the reet and all the shit they show you. It's fucking great. It's that special Nasu touch of, of describing things that are beyond description. It like evokes for you just the, the bigness of, of creation of of the universe it's it's mind bending the whole idea here that she borrows 10 years of her future so she is now herself from 10 years of the future in this present moment so she has those powers she looks 10 years older she's got the big long her hair is much longer representing yeah. her power as a mage it's this bright vivid red she's got the cool costume there's this big portrait they do of her that is one of the most badass cool images in the game it's something I would love to like almost have it on my wall or something it's such a cool piece of art um and then she she embraces the fifth magic which uh, i've heard of the third magic before because that's what the heavens feel is i i yes. don't we're actually recording this before we watch the heavens feel movie so i still don't know what the heavens feel is but i know it's the third magic but this is the fifth and that means that's bigger yes well well it's that doesn't necessarily mean it's better or okay whatever. it's just the order right it's the order in which the like impossible has been achieved is the first second yes. third fourth and so far the fifth magic is the, the arguably is the most recent and arguably the last magic um that like perhaps there is nothing else that is impossible that you can use magic to accomplish other than what the fifth magic does um there's this little like almost poem about it where it says yes. at the beginning the first changed all next the second recognized many in answer the third showed the future tethered the fourth concealed itself and the final fifth had long since lost its significance i love Very it cool. it's so good yes yeah yeah, yeah I, w- I won't tell you what heaven's feel is but i will say uh, the second magic i know is is parallel worlds that's what zelretch did um you'll you'll <laughs> he will come up zelretch will come up he's he's definitely like uh, one of those pro like proper nouns that pops up in a lot of crazy places, but Zelrich developed the second magic, which allows you to go to parallel universes, um, which is I love a, it. which allows you to do a different kind of form of time travel because uh, Toko actually references it, um, where she's like, "Oh, that's what the fifth magic does." Well, the second magic can do that, and without Toko like really realizing, "Oh shit, oh no, you're like just really." like you're not just like traveling through time you're like manipulating time you're like right. doing what you want with time oh fuck okay yeah that is pretty cool like that is a pretty powerful <laughs> magic <laughs> indeed um any other specific scenes in the visual novel we haven't touched on you you wanted to mention before we break i think we hit um basically all the big stuff yeah um i mean because it is that thing where it's like when you break it down it is very straightforward and it's like fairly low-key of a story, which is one of the things that makes it work so well, right? It is not, it's, there's not the Holy Grail war. It's not a thousand roots um, of different stories and stuff. You can, you can imagine a version of this game that is that. It's very easy to imagine a version of this game that has the Alice route and the Alco route and maybe a Toka route you unlock at the end or something. Um, but it's, there's something about the kind of the modesty of the story that really kind of makes it all work. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, and again, I can imagine a single movie version of this. I don't think that's crazy. It, there's been many books based on, or been many movies based on long books. I think this does have a clear first, second, third act structure. Uh, I would very much welcome a multi movie adaptation because I think you could do that as well. Um, but it is there is a there's a solidity to the structure uh, that I think is is very accomplished and makes sense why they're doing this in movie format and not TV or something. Yes. Um, 
one other thing to mention is there is an entire extra like five hour scenario at the end called anyone can laugh or anyone can sleep but not laugh that is basically a I, I called it like it's kind of like Danganronpa in the Nasufers because it is a ridiculous murder mystery it does have choices it doesn't quite have branching paths it kind of like tallies up your choices at the end and sees if you won um but i had a lot of fun with it it's goofy as shit yeah it basically feels like if people have played other fate or like type in visual novels it kind of feels like um what like something like fate hollow Traxia does or i assume kagetsutoya which is the tsukihime fan disc sequel thing does a similar thing where it's like it's 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 got some dramatic story elements in there there's like a kernel of a dramatic story in there but it's also just like an excuse to have all these crazy goofy interactions between characters as well as throwing in like a random new character that you have no idea where the fuck she came from yes. like that's so much like fate holotraxia does that with like three or four people are like where the fuck did who's this person like where did this person come from and then you're like ah well they're cool i'll just roll with it um it's very funny to me that just feels like they had like I wonder if they had just some leftover ideas for a project that would have been bigger, and they're like, oh, let's just like throw it in as this like optional scenario here at the end, and just like put in the little extra characters and stuff like that. You would think they added it for the 2022 version, and they didn't because it does feel yeah. like an extra little sequel thing. But it was there in the original. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I can't imagine it would be nearly as fun if you didn't have the voice acting because the voice acting livens up the comedy so much. Yeah, but there's a lot of really funny stuff. The the new character who is I forget her full name because it's ridiculous, but her middle name is Riddle, which is why it, it's like matches with the Hey Diddle Diddle stuff and all that with Alice because she's an old friend of Alice's. There's this whole part where she makes her dad call in a helicopter from a local military base, and it crashes and then she realizes she's going to have to work all these extra jobs for like the rest of her life to pay off the military and like falls into a deep depression um howling with laughter there's it's it's very fun though do do not miss that if you are going to play this like the game it actually opens with a little message like this is pretty long so maybe take a break and i think they're correct like if you finish witch on the holy night maybe go do something else and then come back to this scenario that's what i did uh but it's very fun and it's it's essential to play because it's just a blast yeah, it's amazing. And and the character you're referring to, her full name is May Riddle Archelot. <laughs> that is a Gundam-worthy name. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. No, Mahotsukai no Yoru. Um, one of my favorite things we've talked about this season. One of my just favorite things. I fucking love it. Yeah, it, it is like, it has like brought visual novels back to life for me in this weird way um and i'm 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 in the midst of the tsukihime remake i'm i'm in its jaws right now um yeah but yes it's which on the holy night well it's kind of yodu just absolutely incredible visual novel one of the all-time greats 